0: Hello! I am Lou Ellen Sinclair. I have directed three plays in my career, and I've had three heart attacks. That's how much I care I'm planning for a fourth. Maybe I should have taken a nice calligraphy class. Oh, forget about it. That Mr. Takahashi's a lunatic. I just wanted to let you know about my study group.
1: Oh, don't be buddy daddy
0: i'll be your study buddy i'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career this work right here is going to change history i think this is going to be our greatest mission
1: i don't have time to study i'll never get into stanford
0: i got big plans for you tonight i got maps i got charts i'm gonna see you through this because my credibility is on the line
1: it's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes
0: Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And we have quite the lineup today, spanning many decades. Amy, what is our topic today?
1: The topic for today is we're putting on a play.
0: Yes, uh, community theater, right? Characters being involved in the the art of the stage.
1: Get out your tap shoes, Francis. Julian Marks is doing a show.
0: So, uh, yes, I will ask you a question I know the answer to. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever been involved with community theater?
1: I have been looking so forward to this episode. So back in the early days when Jay and I were sitting around and we're kicking ideas back and forth, my idea was that we only watch musical episodes of TV shows, and that's the entire podcast. And Jay was like, we would have eight To 10 episodes. I'm like, there's got to be more. I am very excited about this. To me, very special episode of the sitcom study. I am an active community theater participant for nigh on 38 years.
0: 38 (laughs) years. Okay.
1: I was delighted by all the different ways we got to engage with theater. Backyard theater, community theater, all sorts of you know reasons to to put on a show, um, and and the different like the different ways that you can weave this like tell a story yeah. using that and, as the device, and
0: the different sort of functions that being in a show right. can serve right. by people. And yeah, I, I was never involved with community theater other than we saw a bunch of uh, community theater shows when I was a kid. That's definitely how I experienced, you know, Bye Bye Birdie, Evita, Little Shop of Horrors, West Side Story. A lot of the standard shows I saw for the first time at the Yorktown Playhouse or the, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, I actually did a little bit of acting in college. But I I did a lot of like skits and stuff like that when I was a kid. Right. Uh, lots of stuff like that that I kind of I think those experiences I sort of uh, was flashing back to a little bit in certain parts of these episodes.
1: <laughs> well, and also everyone loves to make fun of a theater kid, and that's like sure. that's why these episodes all of these episodes are from the very beginning of seasons or they're the season finale. When I look at these, I'm like, ah, there's a reason for that. They're attention grabbing. It's a lot of fun. There's lots of different, um, ways that you can play around with the characters and get to see the characters that you know and love in different ways. And they're also, all of these episodes are from later in the series. Like they're yes. never sort of early on. The earliest when we get is season four. So our episodes, we watched The Brady Bunch, season five, episode three, Snow White and the Seven Bradys. We watched The Simpsons, season four, episode two, A Streetcar Named Marge. We watched The Office. Season seven, episode three, Andy's play, and Schitt's Creek, season five, episode 14, Life is a Cabaret. Yes. So all of these had the name of the show in the title, except for The Office. That's I wonder interesting. if Sondheim was like, nope, <laughs> we're That's not. That's interesting. No, well, no play on words on Sweeney.
0: And yeah, the, the observation that I was going to kind of come out of the gate with was that we have two real plays that completely exist in real life. One sort of funny, make-believe version of another play. And then the one we're starting with, Brady Bunch, is a sort of uh, a a version of a play that was invented by the show, which is, I guess, what we're going to get with The Simpsons, too.
1: Yeah. So in The Simpsons, they do a musical version of Streetcar Named Desire. So, you know, well-known ip but they just you know switched it up and then um in the brady bunch they did snow white and the seven dwarves but they just sort of mishmash it all around and it's hard to find on streaming services because they use the character dwarf names from disney and, and the song they sing hi ho so um that one is a-, a challenge to find you'll have to do your yeah. <laughs> due diligence to try-
0: let's just back up for a second the brady bunch right? right this this is a big one this was definitely you know we're a little too young to have experienced it in its first run but for me anyway this was very much one of those after school reruns it yes. was always on it was cheesy as hell everybody knew it but we still watched it and we still got some genuine sort of rite of passage stuff out of it. You oh, absolutely. Know, out of the I loved line. this
1: show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't even remember thinking it was cheesy. I remember just loving it. Like this and the monkeys and the old Batman with Adam West mm-hmm. were like, that was my block, my afternoon block when I was in elementary school.
0: Yeah. They were ubiquitous in the 80s and early 90s on Nickelodeon and those sort of syndicated channels. Yeah. Just starting with that theme sequence. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs>
1: here's arguably- the story. Are you one of the lady. most
0: iconic TV theme songs? right? Like top three of all time
1: sets up the entire show. Like you didn't have to have a pilot episode where they explain what was going on. It's done in the opening. So you're good. You You know what the show is all
0: about. You get that great sort of seventies style with the boxes, the little line that shoots across and turns into the boxes. It kind of reminds me of the, the James Bond openings from back in those days, the little dots would come across the screen and stuff. I find it hilarious that they're just like, okay, Hey, uh, Maureen McCormick, we're just going to have you stand there and smile stupidly for like a solid minute and a half. And every, every once in a while, look to your left, right? That's the only thing you can do is look to your left and smile. And
1: a little bit down because your mom's going to be looking up at you in the yeah. first one. And then in the last shot with the whole family, just kind of look in, you know, look forward. And then every few beats, look in a different direction and make yeah. eye contact with the other block that you can't really see.
0: Uh, so anyway, the the episode proper begins First note I have is about the collars. They are enormous and <laughs> deadly. Like you're just looking at a shot of Florence Henderson, the little girl that plays Cindy and the dad and every single one of them. It's like if collars could kill, like they're just, they're these big white, uh I don't know what that's, are those butterfly collars? I don't they're know what you call They're called
1: spread it. collars.
0: Okay just coming down these like huge triangles. (laughs) Uh, What I'm trying to say is that the show is very 70s. The, The styles, the whole look of it immediately. This
1: was a uh, episode was aired in September 1973, so we're looking at a sweeps week episode. So you weren't commenting on the collars. What I was surprised at is Cindy. So we're later in the series, Cindy's now a, a little bit older. She's yes. had a growth spurt, but they still have her in this little girl dress and yes. she's got these very long legs. And I was like, I hope she has bloomers cuz that is a mini dress.
0: Yeah, I had the same thought. It looks like a 12-year-old kid being presented as a eight or nine year old kid they're still dressing her in the braids uh and just yeah you know it's it's not like she's she's not a teenager yet but it's just starting to seem like a little bit of a mismatch like she's outgrowing it yeah
1: yeah she definitely i mean she's still young like you know maybe like 10 11 but she's had a growth spurt and and her clothes are a little too short for her now yeah
0: But the first scene, it it does focus on her because it's her and the mom coming home from a meeting with the teacher. They have to break the news to the dad. And this is where we get the premise for the episode, which is very flimsy to the point that I literally spaced out for like two seconds. And I don't know what it is. (laughs) I... Don't understand. So why the beloved they're...
1: teacher is retiring, Mrs. Okay. Uh, Whitfield, the beloved teacher um, that Jan had, that Marsha had, and they make a joke that even the mom had back in the day. So everybody, uh, and then then we find out later through the episode, all the boys also had this teacher. So every single person has had this teacher cindy now has her it's her last year she's retiring so the thing that you know she wants as like a retirement gift from the school and the community writ large is this rare book set that's two hundred dollars and so everyone wants to raise the money to give her this going away like retirement present because she's this wonderful amazing teacher and Cindy says, well, my family can put on a play and we can charge ticket. Like we can charge admission. And um, yeah, it'll be great. And just volunteers her family to do Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Yeah.
0: I mean, I guess that's a good plan. Like it just sort of begs the question, like, could we not just ask everyone in the class to chip in a little money and buy this, this book? Like of all the ways to raise money, I don't know. It just seems like a really specific and complicated way to go about it.
1: (laughs) Well, it is a plot device, so there's that. But also- isn't there something to, like, being a part of a community where, like, if you want to give somebody a present, it's not, hey, everybody just fork over some money. Let's yeah. actually do something that brings joy to the community sure, and is but fun. I guess what I
0: would think, if it's a teacher, why not... Maybe involve more of the class. Maybe say, hey, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, we're all going to put on a play together to raise money for this thing instead of saying, no, I'm going to go home and force my family to put on a production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and, and charge people <laughs> because money. Because
1: then we would be doing last week's episode, which would be a backdoor pilot for a completely mm-hmm. different cast sure. of kids. And we're not going to do that. We're going to use all these kids that had this same teacher, and we're going right. to do a story with the whole family because yeah. it's the Brady Bunch.
0: And I guess they also realize that the number of people in the titular Brady Bunch kind of works out to the cast of the the show right nearly
1: coincides with the uh with the you know if you leave out the huntsman because that's not going to be a part of the show
0: right now for some reason i guess it's just a running joke they thought was funny Everyone wants to be dopey.
1: Right. I didn't understand why that was a thing. But so we have this whole scene where Cindy, you know, she gets out of the car with the beginning. She gets out of the car with her mom. And her mom's like, you've got to tell your dad what you volunteered us for. And so she does. And dad's like, okay, you know, I'll do it. But. You've got to go convince your siblings. And so then she goes to each kid and is like, hey, I, you know, will you do this? And they all say, yes, but I want to be dopey. And then after the first one was Jan, right? You had a weird reaction to Jan. I did.
0: I had strong reactions to all three of the female children. And I don't, I don't want to (laughs) be. I don't. (laughs) Do
1: tell Jay. I don't want to
0: incriminate myself in (laughs) any way positive or negative i will say cindy we already established looks like she outgrew the whole way that they're presenting her she looks too old to still be in the little kid clothes jan Looks like she's forty-seven years old. Like
1: she just <laughs> she, she's wearing glasses, and this is have, the, like the one of the only episodes. Yeah, that she they have her glasses
0: wearing in. glasses, and her hair is done in a way, and she's just sort of sitting in the bed, and it looks like she went into the bedroom of her great aunt to ask her if she wanted to be in the play.
1: Yeah, no, it was. So Jan is the first other child that we see as she's going from room to room throughout. And so it was, it was a little striking. Like we recognize right away that Cindy was a little bit older. So I was expecting all the other kids to look a little bit older, but Jan did not look like a little kid anymore. She, I don't know about 47, but she, you know, she did. She looked a little bit older and this was the last season. So it's it's, just her
0: whole manner. It's her whole personality. She's the bookish one. And so just that moment of walking into the bedroom and her looking up from her book with the glasses and everything, it was just funny to me how old she looked.
1: (laughs) And then- Yet still a child. (laughs) Yeah. Then they go to Marsha. Then they go
0: to Marsha all I'll say is it's uh she earned her status as a teen idol. Like she is just radiant. Like you know, she just she does not have the same old beyond her years quality that Jan does. You look at her and you're just like, Oh yeah, if I was a teenager in nineteen seventy two or whatever, I would absolutely have Maureen McCormick on my wall.
1: I only have one thing to say to you. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Yep. I mean, for all of us girls who wear glasses, Jay, I like the glasses (laughs) girls, but
0: uh, yeah, it would be tough to be Jan in that family.
1: So yeah, Marsha is, Um, she's in the bathroom. She's getting ready or she's got her hair pulled back and she's like doing her makeup. She's in a robe or something, but she looks the same. Like she yeah. doesn't, you know, she hasn't Marcia's like, when I mean, she was already kind of, you know, in her teenage years when the show started. So now she's just a little bit older, but it, it, her uh, change in appearance wasn't striking the way the little kids.
0: Yeah, everyone wants to be dopey. Now I will add the personalities of the dwarves, and I know this from a Saved by the Bell episode, were invented by Walt Disney for the movie. So the idea that you would take a public domain you know story like hansel and gretel or snow white and do a community show of it makes sense but the fact that they would all have the different uh personalities like the movie doesn't really make sense at that point you are just sort of making making your community theater version of the disney version of snow white but anyway the casting sort of sorts itself out and alice gets to be yeah the they evil draw from the hat <laughs> Yeah,
1: And then nobody picks Dopey, so they have to find a ringer to be Dopey. And just at that moment, who should knock on the screen door but Sam the Butcher.
0: Sam the Butcher, who is Alice, the housekeeper's boyfriend. So he gets to be Dopey. She gets to be the Wicked Witch. Uh, She immediately starts sort of channeling the witch- from Wizard of Oz.
1: Yes, uh, she does the cackle like the Wizard of Oz witch. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But because anyways, in Snow
1: White it's not it's not a wicked witch it's a wicked queen.
0: Right. That's true. I mean she's she's magical so you could you could, you know, accuse her of witchcraft. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, they definitely were sort of mixing their metaphors there. The first big tangle is they get a phone call and I love how the parents answer the phone and actually uh, give it to to Cindy. Like, oh, oh, you have logistical, you know, information about the show. Oh, I'll hand you off to our eight-year-old daughter. Oh,
1: so. I loved that. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so great. I mean, now, first of all, she's the youngest of a very large family. Mm-hmm. And my mother is the oldest of seven. And she can tell you that the younger ones were independent. Sure. <laughs>
0: but so Cindy takes this phone call. Where she finds out that the theater that they thought they were going to get to use to put on the play, uh, she gave them the wrong date, yada, yada, uh, it's not available.
1: No theater, that's fallen through. Oh no, what are we going to do?
0: So there's a few scenes of them kind of going through possible ideas. And then the dad, Mike Brady, says, I have the best idea ever. We'll just do it in the backyard.
1: He's sitting at his drafting table and he's been crunching the numbers of, of doing the geometry, finding the area and perimeter of of the backyard and all the things that he they've already decided to do with the set and he's like, "We can do it, it'll fit,
0: yeah, but so uh they decide to do it in their backyard, and they do basically, and we get you know we get to see this sort of Brady Bunch version of <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarves.
1: Wait, we forgot the the next snag, which is when Alice was practicing, she ate all of the apples. That's right. So they don't have, like, last minute, everybody's in costume, they're about, like, the audience is coming in, they're about to go on, and Alice is like, wait... I don't have any apples. I ate them all. So then Sam and Mike, and Mike the, the dad, dad, have to go off to the grocery to pick it up.
0: Yeah. So the mom is sort of vamping and stalling for the audience, because the audience of local people have gathered in their backyard to watch the show. And the mom is vamping and they they uh yeah, the men go to the store, buy an apple. And then they get stopped by a police officer. We get some more of that sitcom logic where, you know, minimum communication. <laughs> the first thing you say to a, to a police officer when he asks you what you're doing is, I'm dopey. And then when the dad comes comes out of the supermarket dressed in purple tights and like a little Robin Hood cap and says, I'm Prince Charming, right, instead of leading with... Wearing costumes for a play, obviously, Uh, but the, the, you know, that whole little misunderstanding sort of sorts itself out, but the police officer says, okay, yeah, that's fine. But then the dad mentions that they're, that they're hosting this play in their backyard and charging admission. The police officer's like, well, you're not zoned for that. You need permits.
1: Well, so this story takes place on a Saturday, so there's no way that any municipal offices would have been open to get said permits in the first place uh, on that Saturday morning. The cop doesn't come to the show, so one can only assume that he has been bribed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> or he basically just said, just "Like, well, uh, you know, next time get your permits."
1: But they are delayed, right? Like yes. the-, the whole
0: point is there's a little bit of suspense, and we'll see this echoed in at least one of the other shows. There's right. a little bit of suspense with our leading man is a wall, and the show's gonna start.
1: And not just that Prince Charming is a wall, but Dopey is the first character on in the very first scene, so he has to be there to start the right.
0: show. Not to mention the important uh, prop. Apple. That's
1: right.
0: Um, (laughs) But they get there. They start the show.
1: Um, And ridiculousness begins. Yeah. Florence Henderson as Snow White doing her best Gone with the Wind Scarlett O'Hara voice. And then busting out these random high notes. And she would dip in and out of this Southern accent. She would be like... Here we go.
0: I was going to say if that's her best, Scarlett.
1: Weirdest thing. And then she'd be like, (laughs) I need these random items.
0: Yes. I would say this is very much in line with what we were talking about in the doppelganger episodes when the actors want a chance to cut loose outside of their regular roles. Uh, I think a lot of times that's in the motivation for these play within a TV show episodes. And absolutely, you get this bonkers performance from her. You get Alice, the housekeeper, dressed she reminded me of the mother-in-law in I Dream of Genie*, who in turn reminded us of Divine, the drag queen.
1: She so, has this big, huge red wig yes, on. Tons of
0: makeup. Super weird. She is doing, uh, like we said, the Wicked Witch from the Wizard of Oz movie sort yeah, of characterization. Florence doing. Henderson is all over the place yeah. doing the... I thought it was June Carter because I started thinking, well, the dad looks a little bit like a cowboy thing. So So maybe they're supposed to see me like Johnny Cash. I don't know. But yes, (laughs) the Southern accent was inexplicable.
1: And in and out.
0: Yes. It's just very silly. Like the whole thing is very silly.
1: Oh, it's so Uh, funny.
0: They're making, you know, the the rest of them sort of parade out in yellow T-shirts with their respective dwarf names printed on the shirts. Dopey isn't silent like in the movie Dopey. He just talks... Like an idiot, he's just like I'm. Dopey, (laughs) it's it's so stupid.
1: So they, you know, the show goes on. It's a rousing success. It's short, and then they bring Miss Whitfield up on stage to give her her present, which apparently they were able to buy, even though they hadn't yet raised the two hundred dollars. And that's the end.
0: Yeah, that's basically the end. And. I don't know. I guess what you get in this one is the community aspect of community theater, right?
1: Well, see, this isn't community theater. This is like, no, let's, of course not. let's this put is... on a backyard play or let's do a fundraiser for the school yes, or something I, like that. This I'm, is I'm not.
0: grasping at some way to tie this into the others. And what I would say is just the fact that it's a fundraiser, that's the community. Part, yeah is that the town is coming together you know to to see these people that they know and love put on a show yeah but i would say this probably doesn't give us any insight whatsoever into the actual process of putting on a play and uh is pretty worthless as entertainment in general.
1: <laughs> well, I thought it was kind of fun. Um so fun some fun facts. The woman who played Mrs. Whitfield is the actual onset teacher or was the actual onset teacher? Oh, that's fun, which I thought was interesting. And in the audience, the kids in the crowd mm-hmm. were the doubles for this like the stand-ins for the other oh, for the Brady kids. and sure. there was one so the reason I went and looked this up was because there was one girl who had Cindy's exact pigtails and yeah. I was like, oh, that's why is that girl lo- is Cindy in the audience? Hold on, who is it? And then looked hmm. it up and that was, yep, they did. They used the the kids they already had on set. Um, as the audience members. Yeah, that makes sense. I
0: wonder if they did that a lot, like if they needed kids in a classroom or something like that. Okay, so now we're going to jump forward like 20 years or so to the mid 90s. And uh, move on to The Simpsons.
1: The Simpsons, season four, episode two, a streetcar named Marge. Marge decides to audition for a musical version of Streetcar named Desire. And all sorts of other things happen. But that's the main thrust of the show.
0: Now, The Simpsons would do this a few times where the joke would be a musical version of something that you wouldn't think a musical would be. So like uh, they had a Planet of the Apes musical at some point. They just like to do that. And so the real Streetcar Named Desire is the Tennessee Williams play, right? right? That was the movie with Marlon Brando. And I guess the Simpsons episode just sort of asserts there's also a musical version and they make up. A solid like half dozen little songs to to go into it. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I took it uh, not necessarily that they assert that it existed. I took it, which is what happens in a lot of community theaters, that you just have like some local dude who is like, I'm going to write a thing. Yeah. And then that's what they're putting on because it's super cheap to put on stuff that your local community theater people write.
0: Yeah, no, maybe it, yeah, maybe it exists only because this this director, this John Lovitz uh director made it exist. Right. Um, it begins with Marge really uh snared in this kind of suburban ennui. Homer doesn't pay attention to her, the kids don't listen to her. She's just sort of bored and you know, they they really do a good job of sort of characterizing the home as just sort of like You know, uh, just a total dead end for her. She
1: says, I'm stuck at home with Maggie all day. I was thinking it might be nice to do something in the evening when, you know, when you guys are are home. And so I'm going to audition for this play. And she tells the family while they're watching some beauty pageant, the American Miss American Girl pageant or something. And they don't hear her. They just completely...
0: Because they don't pay attention. And then later, when she's actually going, Homer does this whole, he gaslights her basically and says, if you had told me, I would have uh, heard that. And she starts going, well, I, I thought I told you. And so it's establishing from the start, you know, what obviously we all know from decades of The Simpsons, but they're really sort of hammering home this dynamic that Marge is... A wet blanket, right? A pushover. And uh, she doesn't stand up for herself. And she's just totally sort of tread upon in this marriage. And she insists on going to this audition because, you know, I think for the same reason that people in real life uh, do community theater a lot. You know, she states flat out, I want to meet other adults. I want to have friends. I want to be involved in something.
1: I want to do something. I want to do something that's fun for me. And later on, Homer makes fun of her for doing all those other things, like a, like a photography class and a, you know, quilting club and some of the other little hobbies that she's tried over the years.
0: Yeah. But so uh, we get this audition. It's not really an audition. The director... Chooses he at least chooses the male lead based on just having uh all the men take off their shirts, and Ned Flanders is the only one with a decent bod.
1: Like, is that a thing? Do we know that in Simpsons lore that Ned Flanders is cut? <laughs> no, I think
0: in this particular episode, that was sort of a funny reveal, but it makes sense because he would have the sort of my body is a temple kind of attitude. attitude.
1: So, like, it's if it's not already painfully obvious. I, oh gosh, all the backlash is coming my way. I am not a Simpsons fan. So it came out when I was in middle school. I was not allowed to watch it because Bart was my age and he was a bad influence. And he said bad things like eat my shorts. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to watch it when I was a kid. And then I just never got into it. I don't know. I mean, it's been on the air for however many years. It's got 34 something seasons. It's, I mean, it's, A juggernaut. Everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. I know it's super like Easter eggy and self-referential at this point. And back in season four, it was still like all the Harvard guys, right? Writing for it. This was when it
0: was really sort of coming into its own. I think everyone kind of knows that sort of narrative of the first couple years of The Simpsons being a little shaky and then basically seasons three through 10 or so being like, you know, at least we remember them as this sort of perfect satirical intellectual, just really brilliant kind of groundbreaking stuff. And then ever since it's just sort of been this cultural institution that, you know, keeps chugging along.
1: So when you say we remember them as this like satirical intellectual thing, starting in season three. We were like in ninth or 10th grade, maybe when that was true. Like, I think I maybe was in eighth grade. So how would you guys at the time, because this is before Google (laughs) and Lycos and all the other things that are going to date us, how did you figure out what the references were that you didn't know?
0: Well, some of them we didn't. And some of them were just sort of word of mouth type stuff. Okay. Uh, but what I would say watching this episode, I think there there's one point in particular that really reminded me why The Simpsons is so great. Because they had a real talent for making references and parodies that were still funny if you didn't know the specific reference or parody. So they were the exact opposite of all those horrible spoof movies that thought they were funny just by going, look, we're doing the Pulp Fiction dance. Look, we're doing a thing like this other movie. The Simpsons would do things like, in this episode, there's a B-plot where Maggie is at the daycare center and she has to break out of the the daycare center as though she's breaking out of prison. A la
1: The Great Escape.
0: Right. So in the course of like 30 seconds, they do A Great Escape parody with that music and everything. They do a Mission Impossible parody with that specific uh, stunt that was in all the Mission Impossible trailers at the time. And then they do a parody of The Birds, where seconds later, when Homer comes in and it's eerily quiet and all the babies are just standing there staring at him that's a reference to a moment at the end of hitchcock's the birds right but that whole sequence is still really funny even if you don't get any of those any of those references, references. but so to me that's that's the best answer i could give to your question was that Yeah, when we watch it now, you know, maybe it wasn't as brilliant as we thought it was at the time, but those writers were very good at working in a lot of different stuff and still just making it funny to everybody. And then, yeah, you would learn years later, oh, that Simpsons thing that I was already on the ground laughing at was actually a reference to this thing. I just thought that was a funny way of saying that. Yeah. You know?
1: So, that being true, I'm thinking about the timing of this, right? Like, this is, you know, th- this is the fourth season of The Simpsons. This is October 1992 and this episode airs. Is that idea of sort of lightly, loosely, or directly parodying things within another storyline, is that something that existed in TV at that point, in short form TV, in in this kind of a way? Like, was this really groundbreaking, I guess is yeah. what I'm asking. Well,
0: obviously, I'm just offering my own personal, you know, take on it. I think what The Simpsons sort of discovered about itself around this time was that by being an animated show where you had – a few people doing all of these voices. And so you could very cheaply and uh, efficiently have this entire sprawling community of characters gave them all different uh, all kinds of fodder for different satire or comedy or what have you it ended up getting them into trouble because it turns out that yeah maybe having Hank Azaria play people of every different race and ethnicity has some downsides too
1: but <laughs> it what... took us just like 25 30 years before we figured that out though
0: right but what you get is this unlimited cast of characters where you go like oh uh, of course in any show you could have a storyline about a police officer or a shopkeeper or whatever but with this it was just so easy for them to bring in dozens of dozens of characters whenever they felt like it you know oh you want to have a you know a, a beauty pageant thing like that little beauty pageant bit at the beginning would have been a major thing for a live-action show to do but with the Simpsons they're just like oh we have a funny idea we could do a little thing spoofing beauty pageants and and they just do it. And so I think that was what they started tapping into in these early seasons was that for a sitcom, we have resources and possibilities that a normal live action sitcom doesn't have.
1: Well, and so now you're tapping into my initial hesitation on having animated shows on the podcast in the first place, because you can do things like this that are like Maggie repelling down from the ceiling that would be a big to-do if you were going to try to do it in a regular, like, mm-hmm. you know, Friends episode or something like sure. that. Or these huge crowd scenes mm-hmm. that you can't really do. You know, like like we said, in the Brady Bunch, their audience consisted of about 15, 10 people, and it was the kids that were already on the set. But you can have this thing in in Maggie's daycare where there are hundreds of babies all sucking on pacifiers, staring up at Homer when he comes to get her from the, from the daycare. So the world of possibilities that's open to, and the storylines and the things that you can do that are open to the, the writers and the directors and the, everybody in in animation is not anywhere near. It's much more unlimited.
0: Yeah. And in some ways that does make it fundamentally different than the other shows and yet in a lot of ways it's not and I think that was part of the reason why I was sort of adamant about including this episode in this lineup was because to me it it fits right in and even though uh what you're saying is true and yeah they could go to Mars and and the moon if they wanted to most of the time they don't and you granted the Simpsons did go to outer space several times but (laughs) At its core. They've
1: done everything. They've been on the air for 40 years. Exactly.
0: But at its core, especially in these early days, it is very much an animated version of a family sitcom. And I I'll put it this way: the dynamic that we get here with Marge and Homer and her motivation for joining the play is uh is much more real than what we got from the Brady
1: Bunch. Oh yeah. And and so again, full disclosure was not necessarily on board with including animation. Like I already said, didn't really care about the Simpsons in the first place. Like I get it, it's this cultural institution, but it's it's just not my bag. I'm so glad that you said, no, we've got to do this. First of all cuz a I love theater. I love Tennessee Williams. And this was like I I didn't realize the whole like archie bunker kind of thing that they have going on there and and that whole dynamic I didn't know because not didn't watch it. And they set it up perfectly. Like I was so crabby and cranky at the beginning of this episode and was. And it was just like, oh, Homer's such a dick. God. Ugh. But that's exactly what they wanted you to set up because they're setting up that same Blanche DuBois-Stanley um, um Stanley relationship that happens in The Plague. And so they mirror it. And it was really, really well done. And of all the four shows that we watched, we could argue that the last two, The Office and Schitt's Creek, are not really sitcoms either because they have that single camera thing and they're not – on the set with the cameras, multi-camera. By the time you
0: get to Shit's Creek, you're basically watching a serialized movie. So it is a different style. Yeah. But that's what makes that's what makes the sitcom study, if you will, so interesting is seeing how this, you know, sort of loosey goosey art form evolves and mutates. And over mutates, the years. yeah.
1: And so uh, this episode of The Simpsons is there, it's so nuanced. Like when I went to start looking up some of the things like you were saying, like if you don't get a reference, like there was lore back in the day and word of mouth and it would, fi- you know, I, of course, I, I don't have that. I'm just like, OK, Internet. And so I start looking things up there are pages and pages and pages and pages i mean it is it's beyond all the things that people have to say about just this one episode it was pitched two years before so it was like an early it was an early pitch that they needed some time to figure out how to do it because the background animators were going to have to design all different backgrounds and Mm -hmm. sets and stuff
0: crowd scenes are really hard they're hard in real life they're hard in animation and yeah i hadn't really thought about how this would be more challenging in that sense than your standard episode but yeah i think what what you're sort of hitting on is just how maybe more than any of the other ones like this what was so perfect about this episode is that it it shows you the power of theater both from the point of view of the person doing it and the person watching it, right? Because you get the first sort of big kind of breakthrough is Marge being all mousy in the audition process and the rehearsal process. And the only way that the director can ever get the passion that he needs out of her is when Homer is being a total dick and, you know, pestering her or ignoring her or something. Yeah,
1: he crashes rehearsal yeah. and is like, Marge, come on, let's go. And the car's running and she finally, like, and then, you know, he does something with a candy machine and a vending machine and he's just being an idiot and and he gets thrown out. He says, I'm going to wait in the car. and And then he's honking and she just loses it and envisions Homer's head on Ned's body. And then Ned completely morphs into Homer and she smashes the bottle on the table and she goes for him. Yeah, like the, the scene from that from the actual play. And then the next time we see Ned, they're rehearsing again the next day, and he has a wound, a bloody bottle stab wound on his chest.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we get the sense that you know Marge's frustration is, you know, she she's able to uh you know expel that through her acting. And then you get the flip side of it when Homer finally sees the play and he connects to it and and it helps him understand, you know, why she's unhappy.
1: So that's the one part that maybe there's something I just didn't get, but I didn't see that. So we get to the end of the play. Everyone's standing and applauding. She's getting flowers. Everyone this like oh my gosh, you're amazing, so wonderful, woo woo and he's got his he doesn't clap he's got his head down he looks like he was he wasn't sleeping because we could see you know his eyes are open but he's got his head down he looked really you know forlorn yeah he just didn't look happy and then they're outside the theater after the show just the two of them talking and she's you know he's like you know that you did a really good job and she's like what are you talking about you were basically asleep at the end like you you know and he was like no I just thought it was a really sad show and he explains how he is completely under understood that but then what does he say that makes marge think that he's going to change his ways because he doesn't say any of that she's just like oh homie you got it that's so nice throughout
0: the performance they show a couple shots of homer looking either sad or bored right and i think you know especially because he's a cartoon character and he's got a pretty simple design (laughs) they're sort of playing with the fact that you can't really tell but there's multiple times where they show marge performing on stage but clocking homer's reaction and he seems to be sort of unhappy or spaced out and then at the end He's like so unhappy that he doesn't stand and clap for her. And she takes that to mean he's, he's so bored and checked out that he's not paying attention at all. And then, so afterwards the fact that he's able to, even in sort of rudimentary terms, tell her back the basic themes and thrust of the play is super impressive to her. Like the fact that he had any emotional reaction at all is she's touched by that. And what he does say is something as they're walking away in the wide shot, he says something to the effect of like it. I almost started to think that I could see a little bit of myself in that Stanley guy. And she says something like, oh, maybe just a little bit, homie, you know, sort of implying like he's just beginning to scratch the surface of self-awareness and realize, oh, the reason why you connected with that role is because I'm an asshole.
1: Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, which is uh, the thing that, like, bugs me. Look, I love the episode. Don't get me wrong. But that I I'm so over this, like the man has to do the very bare minimum emotional intelligence thing. And that is enough. And like, now we're going to give him credit and isn't it lovely. And he, his wife isn't mad at him anymore. And, and she'll just like continue to placate him as he goes on his little one baby step towards self-awareness that he's going to forget about in 10 minutes.
0: Definitely. Well, and (laughs) I sort of, you know, it's funny when you, when you describe How, you know, you found the beginning so upsetting with their dynamic, I figured you would. And it's funny watching it now and seeing how, uh, for one thing, just the changing times and how, you know, the husband that seems like kind of an asshole in the 90s now seems like really an asshole. But also, not palatable. but also just how The Simpsons uses the fact that they're cartoon characters to draw in broad strokes. Yeah. And so, you know, this would look like some sort of horrible portrait of a marriage gone horribly, horribly wrong if they were live action people. And instead, because they're cartoon characters and because it's Homer Simpson and Marge Simpson, it's like they're just such caricatures, uh, if you will, of those personality traits. Marge, too, because she's so meek and just wishy-washy and, you yeah. know, like she has no backbone whatsoever. She's just as upsetting in some ways as Homer is right. and how extreme that that characterization is. But yeah, they definitely... They do things with those characters that would be upsetting if they were real people and maybe are still upsetting as cartoons.
1: Yeah. So, okay, a couple of things that we haven't hit on yet. The first musical number that we really see in full is setting the stage for Streetcar Named Desire in New Orleans. Yes. And they are just taking shots. (laughs) yeah new orleans. that's funny
0: i didn't even think about that being controversial but yeah,
1: yeah.
0: totally it's like pirates whores and-, yeah.
1: and like trash in the streets and needles and it was it just paints a really des- desperate and desolate picture of new orleans so apparently a new orleans newspaper published the lyrics. Before the episode aired, mm. and um, there were a bunch of complaints by one of the New Orleans, affi- the Fox New Orleans affiliate, that was saying, "You know, we're not going to air this episode." So Fox had to issue an apology. Wow. Which at this time, right, wasn't Fox kind of doing all the time? Like this is one of the reasons I wasn't allowed—not this in particular—but I wasn't allowed to watch a show because it was on Fox. Fox liked <laughs> to
0: court controversy. They sure yes. did. My question for you was, you know, this this stereotype of the community theater director that can't accept the fact that he's not in Broadway and is, you know, just sort of pretentious and sort of out of touch with reality and not, you know, accepting the limitations of the people in the show. Does that ring true for you or are most community theater directors just normal, nice people from the community?
1: Okay, so I feel like this may have changed over time because I absolutely remember when I was in high school and when I was younger doing community theater and having or being involved with, you know, the local community theater scene. And we all knew the directors that were screamers. That would like belittle you and yell at you and everybody knew, oh, you know, don't mess with Murray or don't mess with, you know, Jason when he gets like this or whatever. Everybody knew that there were certain directors that had their trigger points and they would, you know, yell at you as time has gone on you're not allowed to do that anymore. Yeah. And that change didn't happen like with the rise of Me Too. You know, that that change happened much earlier. So when I um I moved away from my hometown. And then when I moved back in the like late aughts, like right around 2010, I got involved again in my hometown community theater scene. And all those same people were still directing and they had lost their teeth in that sense you know what i mean they they I don't know if it was the time or if it was just more acceptable when there wasn't, you know, social media and people weren't like airing their grievances in public or whatever that you just, there was like a certain level of rage and abuse that was to be expected. And then over time, that's just gone away. And people don't act like that anymore. One of my friends who used to, you know, act like that, I guess had a health scare that in this interim time when I was gone away and I didn't know I wasn't involved in the community. But when I came back into town, people were like, oh, yeah, no, he had a health scare. And so
0: isn't that a joke in this episode? Doesn't the John Lovitz director go, I have directed three plays and I have had three heart attacks
1: and I'm aiming for my fourth. So, yes, I mean, so in some senses, yes, but also no, because I I've never interacted with people who were both rude, like uh, you know, aggressive and angry and also delusional in terms of their own capabilities or where they should be in life.
0: Okay. So moving on to The Office.
1: Season seven, episode three, Andy's Play. And this is all about um, Andy Bernard. He's going to star in, or he's going to be one of the the stars in um, a local production of Sweeney Todd. And fun fact about this episode: so this was the last season that Steve Carell was going to be on it, and they made a determination to sort of highlight the different possible replacements. This was Andy's possible replacement for Michael Scott episodes. So later on in the episode, when we see him make a mistake on stage and his cell phone rings and all of that bumbling, Mm -hmm. that was like his Michael Scott replacement audition.
0: Yeah. Andy is an interesting character because it's one of those cases where, you know, a show goes on for so long that he was not part of the original cast. But by the time you get to these later episodes, it sort of feels like he was because they've already added so many people after him and has, he's he's been a part of it for so long. The Office is, is a great show, in my opinion. And I love how the types that they come up with for the characters are just are well observed. Like they're a step or two more specific than the usual, like he's a dweeb or he's a tough guy or he's a nerd. And so with Andy, you get this really specific, he's kind of a theater kid, but he's a sort of greppy, like, like yacht club version of a theater kid. He's an acapella guy. He just he's he's this very certain kind of weirdo. Well,
1: and being like The Office is one of these great shows, right, that because they're set in an office and the only connection that any of these people really have to one another is that they work together they can all be very different types of people, right? Like in Friends, they're all friends. They all can afford apartments in the same building. You know, they're all like, they're all going to be at a certain socioeconomic level. They're all going to be, you know, that's like you kind of have this sort of samey sameness uh, and, uh, about their storylines and where you can go with them to a certain extent, which is why Phoebe was so much fun in that because she's the one that has, doesn't live in the building. But that's what happens, I think, on The Office is that, yeah, You know, the initial premise is this horrible boss who says awkward things and makes us all feel awkward all the time. But then as the show goes on, and this is, you know, like I said, this is the main boss. Steve Carell plays uh, Michael Scott. So this is his last season. All the different characters, you get to like have whole little worlds just by doing an episode that focuses on one of them.
0: Yeah, exactly. And The Office, in a lot of ways did the same thing we were talking about with The Simpsons where, you know, all of these characters, they started out as like background, basically. And then over the course of time, they developed them. And by the time you get Here in the seventh season, everybody's got interesting, funny stuff going on. And so this is also an episode where they're doing the thing of uh, taking you out of the normal office setting. You know, the office mostly was at the office. And then (laughs) every once in a while, you would get the episode at Dwight's Farm. Or Or the the
1: Applebee's. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Exactly. And so this is a kind of fun chance for them to take all of these characters that we know and love and put them in this outside situation. But let's back up a second. So the episode begins, the cold open is a normal uh, humdrum day at the office.
1: Perfect, And
0: then they throw down the gauntlet, Andy Bernard walks into the office and starts performing the ballad of Sweeney Todd.
1: So he walks into the office in a sailor suit mm-hmm. which his character in the play wears because he's like the second male lead. So he walks into the office and begins singing Sweeney Todd and then all of his castmates like descend upon the office. And this okay, uh, and I'll say this about all of the the three episodes that did you know, like real shows, like musicals, they... Are good. Oh yeah, like they're good. I, I mean, I, I let in the Simpsons. I was like, of course they're gonna have the Disney singers. Like, of course it's animated. They can get whoever they want. It's gonna sound good. Like, whatever, right? But then they did a good job in this, and also in the in Schitt's Creek and Cabaret, they did they did a good job. But like, it's good, and there are some moments on purpose where like you'll hear people singing off key or whatever. And mm-hmm. but like, I think it's realistic. It's Absolutely, I think it's a choice, right? Like, I think. You have access as the show, The Office, to cast... You could have cast all ringers like you could have gotten Sutton Foster to come in and do stuff like, you know what I mean? You're you're the office. People want a guest star. They purposefully got like unknown people, but they got people who knew how to do what they were doing. And it was good.
0: But uh, you also get all the reactions from the people in the office. Right. So Jim just immediately uh, delights, (laughs) sees this and is just like, this is exactly the sort of ludicrous bullshit shenanigans that that he loves yep and yeah everyone uh sort of you know in in their own bemused way enjoys this little sort of impromptu performance they're getting yeah michael the boss comes out And once they're finished, creates an awkward situation by saying, oh, this is great. I auditioned for that. When do they post the cast list? And that starts this sort of running story beat of he is disgruntled, basically, because he was not cast in the show.
1: Right. And then we find out later that he auditioned for Sweeney. He auditioned for the lead and he did a full episode of Law & Order as his audition. And so the after credit sequence is Michael Scott doing the full uh, episode of Law and & Order, and which is And this totally funny. jives
0: with his character. They've had him. He takes improv classes. Uh, this is the kind of thing that he would do.
1: So the cast is there. The cast of the show within the show is there. They're doing the thing. And then, you know, the, the other thing about The Office is it's like a mockumentary, right? So they have this camera crew that's following around the humdrum lives of the people who were in the office so you have these moments in this show where the characters can just talk straight to the camera like they're yeah. being interviewed like documentary style so the cast the uh, sweeney todd cast is like we're doing a bit of viral marketing yeah. and they're doing it in their funny cockney accents and their full stage makeup it was it it was a great cold open yeah. i i I, too, had a big smile on my face. It
0: was exactly what, if you were in, if if you had one of these community theater troops and you were doing this to uh, spread the word about your show, and then there was a camera crew there, it's exactly how they would react. Like, yes, please get us on tape.
1: A hundred percent. Having done many of these little, uh, excursions. I can tell you it, it, the big smiles and the delight at finding that there was a camera crew there was so sp- and so,
0: wait, is this something that community theaters do? You do like a little sort of flash mob type uh, like you show up and sort of infiltrate a place?
1: um I've done it I've done it at a mall I've, uh, maybe multiple malls. yep. I've gone in uh, for nonsense i've done I've done several productions of Nonsense and the sequels. Mm-hmm. and we've gone in full nun regalia to baseball games and just. Did crowd work like nice. just started? You know, talking to people and handing out flyers for our show. Yes, absolutely, a hundred percent. This that is sense. <laughs> something that. And then we also
0: happens. get. I think it's before the credits, but we get Andy's talking head where. He says that, you know, his whole motivation here is to get Aaron to come to the show because, uh, and I quote, women cannot resist a man singing show tunes. And then he also makes the joke. He goes, and, you know, sometimes a man can't resist a man uh, singing show tunes. Andy invites everybody to come to the show. Nobody wants to go. Dwight says, last time I went to the theater, a man dressed as a cat sat in my lap. <laughs>
1: that uh, was
0: amazing. Yes, That's a really funny sort of, you know, you trace back, like, sure, Dwight probably would have been a kid when cats was a big thing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I could totally see him being traumatized by that experience. But yeah, everybody sort of doesn't want to go, but then through various means, they kind of all come Come around to the idea. What I sort of latched onto with this was that Andy represents another very real motivation for people who get into this kind of thing. You want to impress somebody, right? Yeah. You want to win somebody over.
1: Well, and especially if you're like, He's got two comp tickets and that's a big deal. Like community theater, the way we make money is audience coming. So having comp tickets, I've done stuff with some theaters, they don't even give them that that's not, that's not a part because that's how they make their money. So they're Mm -hmm. not going to do that. But if you have a comp ticket, that's like precious, you know, most, most theaters that you'll do, you know, uh, community theaters that you'll do shows with, you get two. But so he gives two comp tickets to Aaron for Aaron and her boyfriend, Gabe, who isn't appearing in this episode
0: He is, yeah, Aaron's boyfriend, even though he's kind of a harmless schmuck in general, he's sort of a bad guy in terms of the sort of romantic angle of the office. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, he's just sort of. Uh, like he's kind of a lazy boyfriend he just assumes a bad
0: match for her like Aaron is like a puppy dog right and they establish in these other episodes he makes her watch these horror movies that she doesn't like he's he's pretentious he's into things that she's not really into and he's not willing to sort of meet her halfway and i think you're just very much at this point in the overall story supposed to be on the side of andy kind of winning her back
1: so Aaron is like I, I'm going to go. She's the first one in the office who's like, hey, I'm going to go to see the show, but um, Gabe can't come. He says nobody from the office is going and he doesn't want to go, but I, I, I'll go. So she gives him one of the comp tickets back and says she's going to go. And then slowly he's able to convince everyone else in the office to go. And then we move to the
0: show. We get the show proper. Like we get little tastes of the show and it's good. Like we said, they don't yeah, they really do a good job. They don't make a joke of it. It's not like supposed to be funny that the play is bad or anything like that. No, Uh, and
1: originally that was in the pitch was that they were going to, it was going to be bad. It was going to be a bad version. And then somewhere right before they started shooting, they said, no, we're going to, we're going to do this. Then we're going to do a good job with it. So.
0: Yeah. And I think that's good. You don't get a lot of hijinks necessarily, but I still, I like the sort of device of having like a show going on. Like the noises off thing basically right. of having a show going on that you can sort of follow along while this other hijinks is happening. And there's right. a little bit and there's so a bunch
1: yeah there's a bunch of different like subplots that are happening, right? So we already established that there's the uh, Andy wants Aaron to be there because he wants to like get right. back and he's with her. It's heartbroken
0: because she volunteered to babysit for Jim and Pam.
1: Right. Jim and Pam say they can't come because their babysitter cancelled. Then Aaron, at the last minute, volunteers. So then Jim and Pam are there. Aaron's not coming. And, of course, Andy's all upset. You've got the Michael Scott subplot where he had auditioned for this show. And then um, – so he shows up with balloons and a bottle of wine. And then is the entire the entire show trying to shove these balloons down so that people behind him, their view isn't blocked. So every time he moves in his seat, he's squeaking on yeah. these balloons. And then Dwight and Angela, yeah, they who have, have a this whole
0: thing going.
1: Long, yeah. There's like long plot of there's this contract that Angela is gonna uh, like get Dwight to impregnate her, and they have this contract. They have to have sex a certain amount of times, and he's got this punch card or whatever. But she establishes at the beginning of this episode that she has found a loophole in this contract that if he happens to fall for her, then that will, you know develop romantic feelings, and that would be fine. So her whole thing in this episode uh, is to convince him, A, to take her on a date, uh, which she does. And then halfway through the show, she goes out to her car and changes out of her like normal boring office clothes and is wearing like jeans and sort of a, a like a, you know, a close, like a fitted blouse. And uh, Dwight immediately takes notice.
0: Yeah, it's fun, I think, to have all these little sort of storylines unfolding while we have the actual show going on. Michael causes distractions because the balloons, he loses the balloons and they pop and he knocks over his wine bottle and whatnot. It
1: goes rolling down. So this moment of the wine bottle rolling so the audience uh is raked like it's on an angle, dipping down towards this the stage. So if something falls over round on the ground underneath these auditorium seats it's just gonna keep rolling yeah. and hitting I had just like a flop sweat because I have a hundred percent been on stage when that happened this is why so many theaters don't allow bottles like and drinks because it just runs down and gets people's purses wet and oh my gosh oh oh and I was just I was feeling this so so personally when it happened and and it was this long, moment of the bottle just rolling on the concrete banging into a a chair rolling a little bit more banging into something else and it it was and i've been on stage i've also been the person who perpetrated that in the audience like it was so real
0: yes it's very much the comedy of like it's going to keep on going and going and not gonna it's gonna stop being funny and then be funny again because it just keeps going and then we get another theater faux pas because Andy, while he's off stage, starts going crazy, flipping through his phone, because he he basically wants to see if Aaron has sent him anything. He's like, oh, maybe somebody sent me something on my Facebook wall or an email. I just, just want say, to say break a leg. Yeah, you know, down. he he's just desperate for some contact from her. So he turns his phone on, puts it in his pocket goes on stage and we have this whole scene with a cell phone ringing the guy playing Sweeney, trying to make light of it and going, okay, it sounds like there's a little bird in the audience. Somebody better shut it off. And then it turns out it was Andy whose phone is ringing and he's just such a schmuck about it. You know, We'll turn it off, but then once he hears the chime saying he has a new message, we'll actually open it and check the message on stage. And then that leads him to this whole bumbling sort of spiel, uh, you know, where he can't just, like, move on from the He tries to ad-lib
1: his way out of it. The other two people on stage are ready to just move on and keep going with the plot. And then he gives away... The plot of the show and he's like he's like oh you're a murderer and i don't understand that and he's like no wait a minute my character doesn't know that yet but you got all these razors and you're acting suspicious but that makes sense because you're a barber and you can just like he just has like mouth diarrhea it's just like coming out of his and you're oh man you feel so bad for him and everyone's so it's so awkward the whole thing's super awkward
0: yeah the office did a good job at this point of sort of uh it had moved away from being cringe comedy and had this sort of nice human pathos to it But it's kind of like it never forgot its cringy roots, you know, so it would still give you these moments, you know, these really embarrassing, horrible moments, uh, even though its overall sort of personality was kind of positive and uh, sort of heartwarming. And we get that in this episode because, again, we sort of see how, you know. Andy is, you know, he he was born to play this this role, and Sweeney Todd, he's, you know, he's got all these reasons for doing it, but really, he would love it if Aaron came to to see it, and so she eventually does because she brings Jim and Pam's baby to. The theater, much to their horror, right? right? This at this point, it's like no one's even noticing the baby crying in the theater because there have been five or six other, you know, faux pas. But they hear a baby crying, they go, Oh, that sounds just like our kid. It is our kid. And so they have to run out and basically say, You're a terrible babysitter. You know, give us the baby and leave us alone.
1: Well, and true to the office, though, they don't actually say that. Like it's all said in their looks and the and the sort of things that they're. That they're saying, but not saying, and Aaron doesn't get it at all. Yeah, like but she, she
0: says, I'll just take the baby home, and they say, no, no you won't.
1: <laughs> we're fine. And so she's like, okay, and then she goes and gets to hang out with Andy for a little while, which is nice. They have some fun on the set while there's a cast party going on.
0: I guess she gets to see a little bit of the show, but it ends with Andy being sad they're hanging out afterwards and he's starting to feel like he's making inroads and then she gets a call from gabe and so it sort of brings him down to earth that you know even though she it's kind of not enough and she's not gonna undo
1: the relationship that she's currently in and so she's gonna go and get soup or broth for her boyfriend and yeah. leave.
0: Yeah. And so he's left by his lonesome. So the rest of the office cast sort of discovers him hanging out backstage. And uh and they kind of cheer him up. Yeah. yeah.
1: Moping backstage. And so they sing Macy Gray's I Try.
0: Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah, they do a great job of, you know, uh, Andy's just got the the cheesiest taste in music in the world.
1: I was surprised that we didn't get a moment of Michael trying to do the Macy Gray voice, you know, Um, because she has that like iconic sort of gravelly. And I guess they had hit their cringe quota for the episode, or they didn't know how to do it without it being racist. And they just let that part go. But I was like... Like oh that that's a that's a Michael Scott yeah, moment right for there. sure.
0: But no, we do get a lot of the fun sort of participation moments that you get in the office where you kind of get to look around like Dwight sitting out in the audience, also forlorn because at this point now, Angela has basically said, I'm going to punch the card, but not sleep with you. Like the moment has passed. So he's forlorn. She knows
1: what she's doing.
0: Sure. She's got her whole scheme going on, but he's, he's sitting in the office, like in the, in the audience, rather sort of sadly mouthing along
1: to take like two shots of him throughout the song and the first one he's just sort of glum and then he kind of says like one word and then the next time they take a shot of him he's fully singing the song
0: yeah but anyway uh i feel like what this episode really captures is is that aspect of like, yeah, community theater is one of those ways that you get to see that person you know from work or some other context. You get that little glimpse into their world in this. Even like the way Pam says, like, it's nice to see Andy sing in an appropriate setting, you know. <laughs> yeah, in <like> his
1: element. <laughs> that,
0: little, that little quirk about them, you get to see them in that setting where it's all about that and they get to shine and sort of be in their element. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a real thing.
1: Oh, it absolutely is. And it's really like, I have a hard time asking my coworkers. Like I don't, I generally don't say anything to my coworkers that, you know, it, some people it'll, it'll come up like, oh, oh yeah, I have rehearsal after work or whatever. Oh, what are you doing? And then, it, you know, it'll come up that way, but it is, it's always just like, you don't have to come to mm. this thing that I'm doing. Like we're work friends. It's fine. Like, you know, it's, but every time, you know, invariably a coworker or a few come to see a thing that I do. It's like, all of a sudden they get me all of a sudden they're like, Oh, that's why you always do silly voices and you're so animated. And Oh, now I'm starting to understand your personality a little bit more. And I'm like, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. And also what were the thoughts that you were (laughs) having before? I'm concerned. (laughs) I think
0: this really captures that. And when they all find him at the end and are like praising him, It's kind of like, yeah, he, you know, maybe he didn't achieve his specific target. Right. But he did achieve sort of showing everyone else that he worked with uh, or showing everyone that he worked with, you know, just sort of giving them some context for that aspect of him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Where that comes from. So now we get to move on to another very good community theater version of a show. Yeah, yeah,
0: a real show.
1: This episode of Schitt's Creek is season five, episode 14. It's called Life is a Cabaret. This is the um, season finale of the penultimate season of Schitt's Creek.
0: Yeah, so David and Patrick have just got engaged. It begins with the two of them in bed. I loved this show. I was thinking, is, is Schitt's Creek the most recent, you know, when you think about the office you think like the the you know sitcoms that everyone knows everyone loves the references that just uh, the whole culture is is in on uh has there been anything since shits creek in terms of comedy sitcom wise that has that has you know popped on that level
1: Hmm. No. Cause I mean, normally the things I feel like now the things that you hear the buzz about are all the like drama, you know, sure. ones like the white Lotus and the Wednesdays and, and stranger things like, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of, that kind of show tends to get more of the chat going on. But mm-hmm. the office, I think your point about the office is interesting because it was definitely, you know, sort of a, like a touchstone, a cultural touchstone when it, aired but because of streaming it's ubiquitous everybody knows about the office schitt's creek i i still think is more uh like a young person's thing right like you know i'm talking 50 and under i don't know i i mean i don't know that my parents know schitt's creek
0: that's interesting uh and yeah it's it's only had that first Cycle right, but still, as uh, put it this way, as, as much impact as any sitcom can have now, uh, I feel like Shits Creek had it,
1: and Ted Lasso may yeah. be close, right?
0: My point is just that Shits Creek was a huge show, I would argue, an important show, yes, and uh,
1: and we're now at the point of it where it is like they know they're being watched. Yeah. When they're like, when they wrote season five, they knew that they were big. And so I, I like, I've heard interviews with Jason Sudeikis from Ted Lasso and for, with Dan Levy from um Schitt's Creek, where they talk about just that, like, trying not to let that impact the way you write, but you mm-hmm. can't help. But and and so just sort of, trying to still like they had a story that they were going to tell over a course of, you know, they had these story arcs they were going to go for over the course of seasons. And so just trying to be true to that initial vision of it. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me with Schitt's Creek is I realized when we were watching this episode, this is one of the only shows that we've watched that because of what it is, it, you can't really just drop in and, and feel all the emotions. Like when I watched this episode, I probably was, you know, had been binging them. Like I probably had watched two or three episodes just before I watched this one. I would... Cried like I just remember bawling. I even got the tissues out; had them next to me for in prepare, like being prepared to watch rewatch this episode. And I, I had the emotions. Don't get me wrong, but it was not like that the first couple times that I saw it when I was already in the midst of all these storylines, just right. parachuting in and watching this one episode. You're missing so much of the wonder that is this show.
0: Yeah, I had the same thought um, as we. Get- Yet later in general just tv becomes more and more serialized and yeah this show especially you know between the story being serialized and the uh sort of production values of it you know it's a single camera show it's uh done really well and so it's more like a movie and it is kind of a far cry from the Brady Bunch, yeah. you know, yes. from oh how
1: far we've come, uh, but yeah. still a family sitcom Definitely. in a, you know in a certain way. So if you don't know Shit's Creek, it's this fish out of water story. You've got Eugene Levy, who's the guy with the eyebrows from American Pie and the you know all the Christopher Guest movies, um, very funny Canadian comedic actor, and then his son Dan Levy created this series. So they were a very wealthy family. He was a wealthy businessman. Man, he um, falls on hard times, and his, uh, I guess, business manager or or, uh, partner or whatever was like, it was all tax fraud and tax evasion. So they lose all their money and they end up in this tiny little town called Schitt's Creek that at some point he owned or he bought. Uh, the town yeah. years ago when he was super rich. So they go there because they're like, okay, and now we're five seasons later. So they've become a part of this town that they originally were this sort of like fish out of water. They're still very, you know, they have all their ways of, of you know, previous wealth and the, you know, the sort of wacky, zany uh, eccentricities that come along with growing up or just being very wealthy. The um, Catherine O'Hara's character is a former soap opera actress. She plays the mom, the wife, and uh, and then you have the um, Dan Levy as the son, and then he has a sister. And that's Alexis. Yeah.
0: All amazing. Uh, like you said, they all represent a different take on what modern wealth looks like. Mm-hmm. And so they all sort of don't fit in to this rural Shit's Creek place in their own different ways. Right. And uh, when we started watching this episode, you know, just you immediately get the sort of Dan Levy, um, just that one-of-a-kind energy he has and uh, why he was so funny. That character is just, uh, it's this interesting case of, you know, the way he talks, the way he dresses, the whole way he presents himself is so distinct and unusual. But at his core, he's basically the straight man, you know, yes. no pun intended. And so he has this sort of level headed reaction to the weirdness going on around him because Catherine O'Hara's character and Annie Murphy's character are genuinely daffy and weird. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times he's just sort of saying what any adult in the room would say, but his version of that is also so eccentric and fun.
1: Yes, He's got the like spoiled rich kid thing, but is like with he always has this sort of like glint in his eye. Like that's the thing. If you could, if like capture David in a in a bottle, he always has this sort of smile in his eyes. So funny, where he knows like what he's kind of. And see, I would
0: have said the exact opposite. What I was would have said is that he always looks aghast. (laughs) He always looks. Like what he's seeing or hearing is like, you know, diarrhea on the floor or something. No, no,
1: I think you're right. I think he always looks aghast. And then the minute he starts to talk about the diarrhea on the floor, there's that that winking light behind his eyes that it's like he's almost laughing when he's saying the things that he's saying and it and it's like but but not but he is and it's just oh he's yeah. it's so good and it's and it's perfect because it pairs it like it pairs him up with the his dad eugene levy who you think is going to be the straight man because he's the businessman and he's the this but he actually turns out to be more of like a Michael Scott character who can't say anything right, is just super awkward and cringy, and has... Bad ideas and no ideas over and over and over again. So it's like he must have just, you know, failed forward into this. <laughs> yeah. Which he kind of does again in this hotel business that sure. he stumbles into as well.
0: But I would say the Daffiness pyramid really, you know, the top of that is Catherine O'Hearner. Oh, character.
1: Moira Rose is I mean, she's an icon.
0: Yeah. And so that's that's why we have this play subplot. And to your point about the the story, yeah, it's it's hard to talk about this episode because it really is not a self-contained story at all. Uh we drop in with Patrick and David being engaged, the play itself is a storyline that's you know been They've unfolding been for a long time. Yeah. So, you know. We'll do what we can. Uh, So, Moira has produced this show. Why?
1: So she is, she's directing the show. I think, you know, she, you know, she at some point in the series ends up on the city council. She gets involved with this group of women in the town who have a little singing group. And then through some of those connections, I don't remember the reason why they say, let's put on a show. And this happened earlier in the season because they, there's been um, different parts throughout the season where they've been auditioning and rehearsing. There's this fantastic episode where Alexis, the sister auditions and she sings her like a la Paris Hilton, her like hit single. It's called a little bit Alexis That little scene went viral like you can see Annie Murphy on I think the Ellen show doing a little bit of Lexus like it's hilarious they are putting on a show and I do remember they had a hard time trying to find the person who was going to play Sally Bowles who it turns out like through all some series of events um, Stevie who is the manager at the hotel that the Rose family stays in because that's the only place in town for them when they they first arrived um, some years ago, she has now become kind of like a part of their family. She, you know, she and David dated for a little while and then they're like best friends and so but she is the Sally Bowles character she's the lead in cabaret and Patrick is the MC so he's the other lead in cabaret and then there's Twyla who is the girl at the diner who actually in real life is Dan Levy's sister mm-hmm. Um, she is one of the ensemble members and Alexis is one of the ensemble members and then you have like three other women that are dancers that, you, that are not like from the cast of the show that they just put in this for this Episode is the dancers.
0: Yeah. So we get another version of the lead is missing story. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah and yeah. we
0: have Stevie and Patrick involved in the show. And I would argue that that's this episode's insight is the sort of transformational aspect of acting and something like that, right? Because both of these characters are. Sort of low key, mild mannered people. And in both cases, we get to see them really sort of come out of their shell in a way that, you know, with the office, it's not a surprise that Andy would do well in a community play. Like it's perfectly aligned with everything we know about him.
1: Right. And I think, I think what you're saying kind of parallels a little bit with like the Marge journey from the Simpsons episode, because you see Stevie kind of discovering something about herself where for Marge, it happened in the rehearsal process. And then it was just a matter of like, Will Homer or won't Homer come to the understanding of of why right. this means something to Marge? In this episode, Stevie hadn't... She hadn't had that realization in the rehearsal process. It wasn't until the night of the show. And there was this one scene that she kept saying that she was having a hard time getting. And so one of the things that... So Stevie has... It, Her character is this sort of dry, kind of sarcastic, very, like, Gen X, but, like, she's young, so she's not Gen X. That's
0: why she connects a little bit with David and is sort of, like, a halfway between, like, missing link for him to the rural people. The rest of the town.
1: Exactly. And so she like is the a the last person you would ever think who would want to be in a show and sing on stage and all this like no not at all her bag but she ends up getting it and so one of the things i do remember from the previous episode is that she had like a crying jag in the last episode too she never cries like that's like having emotion like that is not that's not her in her character at all but we're getting to a point in this series where things are starting to feel like they're wrapping up for the characters and so like Alexis uh, Alexis's boyfriend is the town veterinarian he's been offered this like long term study in the Galapagos Islands and she's gonna go there with him so she's saying goodbye at the end like this is her last, you know, we're we're they're telling us this is gonna be kind of the end of Alexis as well. And Ted is leaving, and David and Patrick are getting married, and so that's they're teeing up all these storylines for the next season because this is the season finale. But so what we hear from Stevie after she goes missing, and we don't know why, but she has this really strange reaction to when David tells her that he's engaged she just like busts out crying Mm -hmm. and she's like no no i'm happy you just caught me off guard and we find out later that she knew all along patrick had already asked for her blessing and the reason she disappeared was because she had bought them a really nice Engagement present that was the next town over because that's the only town that has a nice store. And so she had to drive to this other town to pick up this present and come back. And Moira had told her to disconnect from the world. So she'd take her cell phone. So she was out of pocket all day. Nobody knew where she was. And all anybody knew was that the last conversation she had. David told her he was getting engaged. The town knows they have a history. The like they don't know they don't know what's what's wrong. So she comes back and we find out that really what's like it's not that David's engaged. It's she knew that was happening. It's that everybody's moving on with their lives. Like everybody has something. Yeah. And she, I'm going to cry. She, and she has, and she feels like she's just the same. Yeah. So Moira, and this is the greatest thing about Moira as a character, right? Because yes, she's this wackadoodle eccentric with the wall of wigs and this ridiculous voice. And she is so selfish and self absorbed. And I mean, just any over the top thing that you could imagine. It's part of Moira's character, but she isn't dumb Mm. right so she sees something going on with stevie and she's the director and so she comes backstage to like have a chat with her in the middle of the show right before she goes on to do the big number the um for anybody that knows cabaret since the movie because the original cabaret didn't have the song maybe this time in it But um, it was added into the movie for Liza Minnelli, and then in subsequent versions, it's done in in the show. So, like, the revival in the 90s um, with Alan Cumming that was huge, had maybe this time in it. So, she's about to go sing this song. In the show, Cabaret, Sally Bowles is this sort of call-girl-adjacent woman she works as the headliner at this cabaret in nazi germany or or pre-nazi germany and she's trying to figure out her her life right so that's what's happening in the moment of the show and that's also what's happening with stevie in this moment and stevie's been struggling to like get this right moira sees that she comes backstage she's like hey yeah everybody is having these moving on moments or but i'm so impressed with you because no matter what you're always who you are like you it doesn't matter like you just know who you are in this weird little town where you don't fit in you it never stopped you you never tried to be like all the rest of the people in this town like we rolled up to this town and you were just you and you've always been you and that's something like that's why I think you're so great and Stevie it hits like it hits really right at home and she goes out on stage and she just nails it oh it's so good (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. You get that moment of synergy where it's like she's belting out the song and it's like, you know, it's everything that she's feeling. And yeah, you get that sense of, again, like that's the power of theater. That's why people do stuff like that. And I would say the same goes to a certain extent with Patrick. With him, I don't think it's as much about the story mirroring his personal story as much as just you get to see him just totally kind of get out of his skin and become a whole different thing. And that really connected with me. I I did all kinds of weird skits and videos and stuff when I was a kid. My friends and I would do this thing, Banjo Man, right? At my friend Ellis's parents would have, you know, these big parties with all of these like Southern people And so my three friends and I would put on these banjo man skits and I was banjo man. We'd put on these ridiculous outfits and I would jump out there and, you know, this big, crazy voice and everything. And I remember afterwards, my dad going like, that was pretty wild. Like, that was kind (laughs) of surprising to see you doing that, you know, because I was a pretty mild-mannered, introverted kid. And to me it was just like, well, I don't That's know. That's what the
1: character called for, yeah. acting.
0: Exactly. It's just like, well, if you're gonna do it, like you have to be banjo man, and that means you have to do this crazy voice and jump around like a lunatic, and it's just like part of the thing. And you see that in in this where, you know, Patrick is a is a sort of mild mannered, sort of norm core kind of guy. Right. I think we've already had his big moment with singing the song. Yes. Uh, That's probably one of the most, you know, sort of powerful, beloved moments of Schitt's Creek. So you know that he can rise to the occasion, But still, you know, he's this very sort of buttoned up guy and, you know, the curtain comes up and he's in the crazy getup and he's doing the German voice and the faces and everything. And it's that same thing of like, well, yeah, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. You know, like if I'm going to be in the play, I have to play the part and the part is this crazy over the top performance. So that's what I'm going
1: to do. So That's what I'm going to do.
0: And so, yeah, it's maybe not as meaningful for him as it is for Stevie's character but in both cases you get the sense of yeah that sort of transformative quality and that it can help you figure things out about yourself
1: well and i think for patrick this was um again earlier established earlier on and then maybe maybe it's a, a plot point that comes back in in the last season but this is his first homosexual relationship yeah so this is his first relationship with a man like i think we find out in season six his parents don't know that that he's yeah. gay and so so yeah he definitely has this moment where he gets to um come to terms and be like you know he the the MC in uh in cabaret is androgynous you know yeah, it's it's freaky
0: for mm-hmm. lack of a better word and yeah he gets to to be like yeah
1: him. he gets to play and all and all of that which is nice um yeah the and and they have just the I think they have the two songs right from the show we get like uh v Colman which is the opening kind of welcome to the cabaret number. And then we've got later on, uh, we have maybe this time, but in an earlier episode and another like piece of the show that went viral, there was a storyline about Patrick kind of coming to terms with how is he going to play this a little bit? And that in that episode, which was a few episodes earlier, they do the money song.
0: And so I think the only other thing to really say about this one is uh, it ends with afterwards uh they're back home and we get this sort of like three or four way tie of who can be the most selfish or self-absorbed or you know sort of detract attention away from the other person you know you basically from the first scene we've had the tension of david and patrick have just gotten engaged and so that's big news but you also have the show going on. And right. So- and they
1: don't want to tell. Uh, David's like, I don't want to tell anybody until after the show tonight because I don't like my Moira. You know how she is. like, Riddle. She'll be so mad if we steal her thunder. So exactly. We don't want, want to steal
0: anyone's it. thunder.
1: But then Stevie immediately knows he's got a secret. So it comes out. And then. The whole town knows. Yeah.
0: Everyone's stealing each other's thunder. And so it basically ends with Moira winning the selfishness battle. Right. Because we have David, you know, trying to graciously make a toast and sort of start by saying congratulations to the cast of the show and sort of celebrate them and then segue to a nice little speech about him and Patrick getting engaged
1: which uh, gets interrupted three or four times because everybody already knows that they're engaged. And that's been a sort of running joke throughout the show. Like, David's like, do I get to tell anyone? Right. No, I don't.
0: Okay. So basically, if the central tension is, which is more important, Stevie and Moira finally doing their play or David and Patrick Getting engaged. It all ends up getting trumped by Moira getting a call from her agent or whomever and telling her that her crows movie, right? Because that's another running storyline. She was in a movie called like Revenge of the Crows or something. Something
1: like that. And they've made a, a they made a sequel. She you know, she did it when she was much younger. Now they've just made a recent sequel, it was gonna come back. Now it's been tabled. Yeah.
0: So she crumples into the closet crying.
1: She screams bloody murder everybody from the other room runs in she's on the floor just bawling her eyes out right. so and says thing... that the movie's been scrapped and then she crawls into the closet and closes the little doors the little accordion doors and that's the end of it. yeah
0: the whole the thing is kind of a wah wah want on the whole season basically and <laughs> it's like yeah you know we're gonna see how all these things wrap up next time but yeah, so, okay, looking back, I would say, overall, this was a very strong lineup.
1: Yeah, um, this, I mean, okay, Brady Bunch, obviously the weakest, but also kind of the most fun in terms of like that, the sitcom-y nostalgia you feel. Sure. So it was, you know, I I enjoyed that for what it was in that that special little Brady Bunch place in my heart. I think The Simpsons and... The Office and Schitt's Creek, they put on really wonderful shows and they taught us something through that art form. It's amazing. It's almost like the people who chose to go into show business feel like show business has something to say.
0: Yeah. No, and you get the sense, yeah, and all of them everyone's pulling from their own experience, That's right, not yes. necessarily, everyone involved in every show has done community theater productions, but all of those personalities and all of those you know sort of goings on people are drawing from their own tales, but yeah, I mean the the Simpsons. Shits Creek, The Office, like all like they all capture that that fun, that noises off quality of like following along with the story, but seeing everything that's going on sort of around it. And yeah, just really getting getting into like, you know, just sort of what why people do theater, you know.
1: There's just so many examples of this, right, where show people love to put on a show within their show. You know, yeah. like I started this episode saying, get out your tap shoes, Francis. Julian Marsh is doing a show. That's from 42nd Street, a show within a show. And, I mean, so many, the producers, like all of these, every, I think every writer at some point has been like, why don't I yeah. write the thing that's me, you know, my version of this show within a show. And it it, it really... They're good. They're some of my favorite episodes of TV. They're some of my favorite movies. They're definitely some of my favorite musicals and plays.
0: Yeah. I think all in all, I think I would say the Simpsons one is my MVP just because, like I said, it sort of takes you through that whole process. Like, it gives you that sort of survey course. Like, despite being animated, I think there's still some sort of basic truth to like, yeah, you know, this is what a, a community show in Springfield would be like. It
1: would be like Sim... The Simpsons, I think, did the best with their their B-plot being like the most um, rich mm-hmm. with the Maggie and having all the, the references that you were talking about to The Great Escape and everything. I think that... I think the Simpsons was the most well done of all of like, you could find if you weren't a musical theater person or you aren't into doing community theater, you would still love that Simpsons episode. It was, it was just a trope and these characters are still who they are and they were telling those stories for Schitt's Creek, yes, that's true. They, you know, but they, instead of it just being a trope and they were still these characters and, and this was just the avenue, it was more the other way around. It was that they were putting on this show. And so how would characters kind of be in that situation? But I think it was like, it's two sides of that. You know, I feel like you love that episodes of Shit's Creek more if you know cabaret sure. or if you've done stuff like that, but not necessarily done theater before, but if you know cabaret, like that's great. Mm-hmm. There's so much in there. Whereas if you know street named desire, it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, yeah. it, it's funny in the Simpsons, but it's it's not the thing. And then with the office, you don't have to know Sweeney to get yeah. a bunch of the references. They're there, but you don't have to know them. You don't have to know it. That was just more about giving wacky characters a chance to be wacky. I think. All right,
0: so, so much for the community plays. What are we talking about next week?
1: Next week, we are tackling the fear of flying. We're going to watch Sanford and Son, Season 3, Episode 8, Superflyer. We're going to watch Three's Company, Season 6, Episode 25, Up in the Air. Moving ahead to Cheers, Season 6, Episode 19, Airport, five and we'll round it out with blackish season two episode seven charlie in charge which i know you're looking forward to
0: charlie in charge uh yeah we're gonna take to the to the skies next time and until then we will declare this segment of the sitcom study concluded Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog.